今聞いてるのはアンクルイードのポッドキャストみんなブリブリで楽しんでいきましょAustin, Texas is exactly what you presented. A place of transitoriness. Putting the ness on it makes it seem like Nessie of the Loch Ness Lake in Scotland. A ness. 
What is a nest but a fictional creature that doesn't really exist? Or a place that only exists in such temporality that is only a fictional construct, a virtual reality of our minds? Yes, this is South By, where we have plus one friends, plus one followers, and plus one people at a venue, our geosocial, technological, aggregative, insanity feed culture. That's what I think we're here. What I've found is that it's not just one culture too here. There's all these transitory people who have all made different journeys for different reasons to come and kind of celebrate and revelrize in their own way. You see, there's the, these throngs of geeks, and I was thinking about it, and the, these are people who speak a specific code to one another that only is identified by a very slim majority, but here they are kind of putting themselves in a context by the nature that they work in a same industry. They should behave in this manner and do these things in this way and follow this routine. But the, the people who come up for a basketball game right at the college that are equal in number in some ways are here to Austin for an entirely different purpose than the fellows are who are coming down because they're on leave in military bases and then the folks who are in here for some sort of spring break revelry. And now all of a sudden it's the South by South. Rock and roll folks rolling in so you see the black buses and the black t-shirts and the sunglasses instead of khakis and company t-shirts and, mm-hmm. and walking around proudly with a satchel of free gadgets and software that you've been bribed with to talk favorably about a company. Some company that I've never hitherto never said a fine word about. I was like, ooh, I'll take some of your free software because that's a thing that will make someone else happy. Yet I'm not sure how to respond to all these impulses in the sensory overload where there's a constant swirl of entertainment cater these different groups of people can they all be happy at once it's a pilgrimage so everyone's happy except for the people who come here completely completely at the edges of a a social circle even they have an enjoyable time because they are following crowds of crowds of crowds and they get to social gravity a little bit late which means that when they get there, there's 100 or 200 people in line for a venue, and they don't know exactly how to party. Mm-hmm. Even then, they have enough people. Even then, they feel like they're part of something special. They go to the panels, they understand things, and even if they're at the very edges of the change in culture, really what I think of South by Southwest is you have the Industrial Revolution and you have the Information Revolution. And this is the Conference for the Information Revolution. And though it seems like this little tacky, silly, fun, nerdy thing where awkward people rock down the street not knowing how to avoid each other before running into each other. (laughs) That's what the new uh, people will be. The meek shall inherit the earth and the nerds shall become the most famous people ever and the most wealthy. Why is this? Well, it's quite interesting because traditionally in, in culture and in animal type stuff and survivability and evolution, the toughest physical people would always win. But now we have all these mental people uh, encasing themselves in hard techno-social shells, in concrete buildings, in condos, at the tops of buildings, in co-working spaces, in vehicles, with their external social selves in these little tiny laptops. And they are able to become these very terrifying creatures that are running on something that's completely invisible, that skips the body entirely and connects mental to mental. The Information Society. And all their tasks and everything that they're doing and all the creations that impact other people and all sorts of these ways intended or not, all can be done in some mobile, uh, ostensibly anywhere. And it's all done with nothing even necessarily has to be plugged into any sort of greater outside thing. This is a, 
a person and a machine anywhere can create something that can be revolutionary in its own way. Not just anybody. The people that try too hard in the worst way. Well, actually, no, they can make money anyway. <laughs> but it's those people that do stuff before it's interesting and before it's cool and before it's looked highly upon. The homebrew computer club. Steve Jobs dropping out of Reed and hanging out at the calligraphy club or going to uh, India and figuring out calligraphy. You know, people like that. There's no support from them at all. In fact, all the newest ideas aren't taken upon by venture capitalists or looked highly upon by peers. They're completely confused. People don't care about them at all. But yet they're built. And sometimes people, probably the nerdiest people, figure out that it's really interesting, even though it's completely nerdy, and they stick with it for years and years and years, and finally they're successful because of it. And thankfully, there's still nerdy stuff. The problem is that there's about 20,000 nerds who converge on South by Southwest at once. But we're so nerdy, all of us, that we still feel nerdy enough to do our own thing at the same time. So as long as people don't become... Well, I guess, have way too much publicity or too much venture capital, they'll be fine. The minute all that funding comes in, it artificially inflates a balloon crashes it before it can actually become inflated. It's quite a bad idea. And the balloon is filled with the helium of shameless promotion, jockeying for position, rubbing up against fame or infamy, trying to outreach to influencers in any way possible to just start a chain of public opinion that somehow some something will catch a spark, you'll catch lightning in a bottle, and somehow you'll raise the money and money will just rain from heaven and all the dreams can come true? Or is there people really working from this from an altruistic standpoint where it's really just about making the goods? And does it matter? Does the motive matter? On is it, Or is it just the results matter? I don't know if there's an altruistic side behind any of it. I think it's very much centered. Hey, I'm really passionately interested in this. Or the idea of somebody getting inflated ideas about what their company is. In the case of the inflated ideas about what a company is, I always freak out when a new company moves to town or when a bunch of people get hired in a new company because I know within one to two years they will all get fired or laid off. But because people are thinking of things at such a, a short timeline now, they think, oh, I got a new job and I have 60000 a year. I can buy a house, I can move my wife out here, and I can have a kid. And they do those things. And within the end of the year, they lose their house, they lose their child. The horrifying things happen because they get laid off. But you can't tell a number of people this because they would get disheartened. You can't tell people to be conservative with the money and look at things longer than a one-year timeline. And when people are working at B2C companies, like business-to-consumer companies, a lot of this goes on. You get funded by some source. You can't make the VC, like, in time. You can't make the 10 or 100 times the amount you're supposed to make in order to be in lines with your investors. You can't make enough profit. You can't attract enough consumers. And so you die. 
But instead of just dying on your own with like one CEO or one co-partner, one co-founder, you're taking down a number of employees. And up until that point, you've been very optimistic. Oh yes, we can win this war. Oh yes, we are a great company. It's the equivalent of a war. The idea of a new company extending their battlefield and battling against a rival company. This techno-social invisible information warfare that is a soft warfare. No one actually gets killed, but they get stripped of their uh, ability to pay for their mortgage. <laughs> it's this very soft above-ground enemy. Who actually wins? Well, it's very odd. So in companies like that, I always worry a little bit when people say that it'll be around for one or two or five or ten years. In reality, there are very few companies who've survived that long. That's what I'm worried about. And they come and they go, and they, the companies that were the big buzz two years ago aren't necessarily a topic of conversation now, but other companies, venerable brands, try to, venerable in this internet business short-term time frame, try to reinvent themselves and start to tell a new story about themselves. But in order to do that, the only way that they know how is to speak loudly and, and give away free beer rather than the people who are making the innovative, really truly doing unique innovative ideas and really pushing technologies forward don't have any way to come and pay to fly people and have trade show booths or get on panels. But there is some sort of leveling here where the small voices can certainly stand up if they wave hard enough. But it's really hard to determine whether it's about the promotion or about the education or both and if it matters any which way. We're such a tiny minority of the entire population of the world. Yet we think the entire world around us uses an iPhone and goes on Foursquare and goes on Koala and goes on the internet and uses Firefox and Safari. In reality, if they're lucky in the United States, they're using a dial-up connection with AOL. And in another country, they're using a Nokia phone, and it's textual. And if they don't have an internet connection, they're taking a text message from one chief of a tribe to another and running it physically across to another tribe. <laughs> we are uh, in a complete virtual reality. <laughs> South by is completely false. How many of us use this thing, right? Yeah. We have the other type of conferences which are for CEOs and which are the big venture capitalist conferences and we have the other little tiny 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 local conferences the only issue is that South by really is innovative because what happens is fan culture like we're all complete fan culture completely turns into regular modern culture all of the Star Trek moving around with little uh, mobile devices saying beep, 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 beep. <laughs> and then we had a bunch of kids in math class with their graphing calculators, and we had little Tamagotchis where we were beep, 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 beep. And now we have real, actual people in our little phones, just like in Star Trek, and everybody has one. And you can watch as people walk down the street. It's a safety mechanism. It's such a relief for people. Oh no, those two new people I don't know are up ahead at the top of the hill. Look at your screen. Okay, I'm looking at my screen. Now I'm safe. <laughs> look at the screen. Okay, look up from the screen when I've passed. Ah. Uh, and also, it makes no the other people... Required. No eye contact But it makes the other people who the person is passing feel relieved. It's this, this, this uh, friction culture where, oh no, somebody's passing me. Oh god, do I look at them or not? Do I say hello or not? I'm awkward. People are becoming awkward. So if they just look at the screen, they don't have to worry about it. It's a relief. 
Yeah, it's like a little comfort blanket. Yeah, a comfort you, blanket. You can give it a name. <laughs> where you'd expect to see uh, you know a band but instead it's a throng of audience chanting because they're really excited that guys are going to come out and talk about websites on the Dignation show and the people are all standing in small circles talking to their devices and talking in amongst themselves but it seems a strange behavior to be outside with a pasture flowing with beer and a stage ahead we'd expect to be a rock and roll band but this has become a rock and roll hero worship cult in the sense of worship you know hero worship kind of like the rock and roll thing the interactive has its own heroes and its own kind of hierarchy of pecking order of who hangs out with who and who hmm, who's at the, kind of the top of the food chain influence wise and it's, it's strange to see these these people put together in the context of parties and all sort of jockeying for position to talk to various people and it makes everyone sort of 
feel like they're part of this, some kind of game. Like you said, even standing in the line is part of the excitement. They check into the line to let the other people know that they were checked into this line, just in case you needed to know. Yeah, when I checked in tonight, a bunch of people showed up simply because I checked in, and they knew I was there. And that surprised me completely. It's little messages. Everyone has a little personal newswire. But I'm not a level 100. Maybe I'm a level 50. So that makes my experience be completely different at this party. In traditional culture, you have maybe three or four levels. You have upper class, out of sight, lower upper class, the celebrity. You have middle class or upper middle class, lower class, the untouchables. Maybe you have like five or six. The thing is, in celebrity culture, you have like a hundred different levels. Technically, you have like level 100. But how it manifests in reality is like you've got like Eve Evan Williams, CEO of Twitter. And technically, I guess he is at the top of the food chain in some respects. But when you actually look at him, he's nervous as hell. And he's having a very difficult time speaking. And he's really quite terrified at what he's created. And you have all these other really big people. And then you have, you know, the lesser people and the lesser people and the lesser people. And each of them have less followers. And it's become so very quantitative. And this conference, I'm having a good time simply because I've gotten to a very happy level. Where everybody that I know is slightly famous but not over the top. Which makes it comfortable because I don't have people following me all over the street. (laughs) <laughs> but I have very enjoyable people to hang out with. You and I would like to, to keep it this way. <laughs> you haven't had to hire a security escort yet. Yeah. And I don't want to get to that point. No, because there's a... Especially when this the interactive part touches up against the film part a little bit, you start to see a little bit of that celebrity thronging because there'll be some famous movie folks. And certainly that happens with the, the music part. It gets even more so. So it seems like... Is it just a natural progression of the same way other hierarchies break down, or is this some kind of anomaly? Because business, have business, business and technology people, have they been heroes in, a, in the same way that they are now? Ooh, that is a good point you bring up. There are periods in time in which scientists, for instance, become extreme heroes. Oh. Or artists become extreme artists, right? Where they become extremely famous. And maybe in this case, there are, there's a period in time in which technology people become famous. The thing is, I don't know if Twitter's really a household term yet. The idea of Einstein-Delt theory of relativity became a household term. And there was a time period in which all these scientists became really famous. Or you had like a period of like Van Gogh, or you had the period of... But oftentimes it happens after they're dead, though. Right. In this case, a lot of people are alive at this point. That's good. But I think that it's not really about celebrity as much as that we're at an extreme turning point in human culture. And it's just like the, the beginning of the 19th century when we did industrial revolution and, and compressed time and space quite a bit and had a lot of processes. It's just that. Actually, quite a bit of people will be completely forgotten in this, and there'll be maybe one or two people who stand out barely. And then it will stabilize, and we'll just know it as whatever company it was or something like that. Because you think of it like the Henry Ford model, 
We still have a Ford. The Ford is kind of dying out in a little way. Toyota, we just replaced it. It's a car. Really, we just think of it as car. Really, we'll think of it as computer. We'll think of it as Mac. But people don't remember history. History's not taught to them. So we'll just remember the thing that wins. And whoever wins gets the strongest story and the strongest name and pees on the most walls. And they win. They get into our memory. But won't. So this speaks to the importance of documentation, because the more things that are produced, the more likely things might survive down and actually tell the story of how it was for the regular people. And there's a sense now that everyone can, anyone can publish anything to the Internet, but is it being kept? Is someone keeping nope. track of all nope. this stuff? Nope. Barely anybody. There are some archaeologists, internet archaeologists. <laughs> Not that many, though. I mean, honestly, it's who has the time to read it? Is it statistically significant? No, it's only all of our culture writing now. <laughs> God, no one's really doing anything with it. What do you think will actually be kept from this digital era? I don't know. I'm, I, 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 I think even in the terms of when a website gets shut down and... Um, like, there's a whole chunk of when G the plug was pulled on GeoCities, that was people make fun of it or whatever. Oh, that was just a bunch of schlock. But that was a significant period. That was the real first DIY place that anyone no, it that wasn't. wasn't well, AOL home sites. You know what happened okay. with AOL home sites? What? AOL home sites said publicly on their site, and I forgot what year this was, but it was before GeoCities. They said, within two weeks, we will be purging all content from our websites. Please make sure that you back up your content. Now, what was the demographic of people on AOL home sites? It was, you know, people who, uh, really quite unfortunate things every once in a while, like people who had lost their children or fathers or family members and had created a, a sort of um, digital graveyard, like yeah. memorial site, you know, for them. Or people who had educational resources or other types of people who had other types of resources. And they were all on the site. The thing is, nobody actually went to, to the homepage. So they go look at it, so all that because content just disappeared. Yes. And one day they looked at their site, and their site was gone. And it's horrible. And, and when I've done research projects about the like this logging blockade that happened in 1993, I couldn't... I, it was difficult because even though that was just starting to be, you know, stuff had been archived, it hadn't been kept up, links had become inactive, sites had been restructured and the content wasn't moved over, and so it was a lot of going back into strange old archives, but then there's another layer of content that comes out now as people start to get onto like low barrier web tools and they start pulling out the photographs from different periods of their lives that are culturally significant to other people, who before everyone was snapping a picture and before stuff was shared ubiquitously. Now there's an opportunity where people can go back and, and take old content and kind of add to the historical record, but they have to do it somewhere where this content is more likely to live on. And I don't know if the answer is putting as many places as possible or... or if you want to save material, yes. use papyrus, not the font, but the actual papyrus paper, <laughs> or carve it into stone. Or maybe send it out to space. <laughs> Stuart Brand talked about this guy who did a bunch with the whole Earth catalog. He said that we're going to have this period of time in which 
All of this data is just deleted. We have this invisible data, and it just dies. Barely any of it makes it out. The only time in which it makes it out is the LOL cats, the, the, the I can has cheeseburger party, when people got stuffed animal cats. <laughs> or sometimes when the Twitter bird shows up. We used to carve things in stone, or at least put them in books. You can save books from maybe, you know, quite a long time ago. They get really fragile, but you can still keep them. We can't do that with our data. Servers are not like books. Servers decay at a rate much faster than paper. You have to keep them maintained. You have to keep them okay. It's pretty horrifying. <laughs> Should we have backups and redundancy layers? I actually was just talking to a guy who did a bunch of shows for a PBS and a bunch of shows for a Canadian access channel. And he said that when he went back to get his shows, he said, hi, I'd like a copy of these tapes for my portfolio. They said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have those anymore. And he said, what? You didn't keep my tapes? They said, I'm sorry, we can't find them. They just... Things get lost and gone, and things run out of funding. And people's, people's own documents and creations. They get old, so they're on the bottom of the stack, and they're only working on the top of the stack. Everybody in their computers is working on a thousand-foot-tall pile of paper when they carry it around with them. It doesn't get any heavier, and they don't remember that all that stuff exists, and they just kind of write on top of it continually. Like, I found my own journals. I forgot that I used to journal so much. I would do, like, 300 pages a month or some ludicrous amount. And, uh, I started reading them and I said, Oh, God, this exists. It's kind of a frightening time, you know. It takes much less effort to put something into a machine than to take it out. Much less effort to take a picture than to print it, than to distribute it. You can distribute it, so I guess the best way to save it is to make sure thousands and millions of people see it, and then it becomes part of their brains and seeps into culture. But it's not like a physical object that you can print out. It's just keeping a river of data that you can never stop. You never actually have that river going through rocks and actually cutting through and making a V-shaped valley. It's just this thing that doesn't exist. It's invisible, floaty stuff through the air. It's very odd. So it'd be nice to be able to try and archive it. How? How do you archive it? I think Jason Scott of textfiles.org has done a really good job of archiving. He has the BBS system since 1978. Archived. But no one reads them. I don't know. There's a lot of culture. There's not enough time to do stuff. I think there needs to be... Yeah, the thing is, the person who's going to figure it out will be a very upper-class kind of person who speaks a lot of languages and who writes like Upton Sinclair and he'll look down on it and figure it out and write a nice book and we'll see it in a few years 
It's very hard to write about or consider this stuff while we're still in a great period of transition. And because I don't come from an upper-class polylinguistic background, I'll probably not be the person to write those things. But I'll be one of those fun background people and analyze it every once in a while. <laughs> I was poking and sort of prodding and kind of hoping and always watching for a reaction, a reaction, a reaction, a reaction. Are you watching, watching, are you Are you out there? Are you ready to come write this? Are you coming to tell us how we can preserve these things? Because I think that mm, the content's only worth producing if it's meant to last a hundred years. I think of heroes like Samuel Pepys who kept his diary and wrote it in a little code and he never let anyone see it and just sort of stashed it. It was clearly a message to future people that he wanted to know what Victorian England was really like rather than the things that existed through uh, the loudest voice story. And if he hadn't taken the time to do that, or Jean-Jacques Rousseau hadn't taken the time to write confessions where he went into minute detail just to mm, express it as possible. And these things are hundreds of years old and they've survived because they've become part of culture. But if all those other things, there's other people who created things and other viewpoints and uh, people who lived all sorts of different lives. Well, did their record survive? Not so much. I mean, there seems to be more known about ancient cultures in a lot of ways and even contemporary cultures because the real story has been fictionalized in movies when people think about the 1950s it's the version that's in the movies and the and the kind of nostalgic culture rather than the voices of the people you have to scratch deeper and in a hundred years from now how much of that those stories will still exist what will people think of us a hundred years from now let alone when we look back at 2,000 years ago and in Roman or Greek civilizations or further back when they're digging through the Neanderthal trinkets to figure out how life was back then. It seems sometimes that the things we produce now certainly won't be around for it to be examined. Pillars of concrete and stone and iron and engineer, feats of engineering and such, sure, these things will survive, but this, these bits and pieces that we create, they all exist everywhere and nowhere. How will they survive? If you're out there and you want to write this book, well, I'll, I'll lend you a hand by making you some tasty beverages along the way. Ideally, you'd probably be an upper-class person writing this book. You wouldn't need any friends, contacts, or tasty drinks. You'll just be writing it yourself, maybe in a few years after you've listened to this podcast. We don't even have to worry about you. Go write it yourself. Good luck. <laughs>